Well, first we want to say, if you're a student watching online this morning with us, you may be seated. We asked them to stand, but we never... (laughs) They're still standing! (laughs) Awkward. Uh, Speaking of students, I told you I wanted to tell you a little bit more about our trip, and I'm going to start with that. Um, I'm going to try to show you some pictures. Now, I'm going to warn you, um, these pictures still have the watermark of the company we use, that's because they sent them to me this week, and I've yet to buy them, because they're crazy expensive. But I think you can still get a picture, there you go, there we have one of our rafting groups, we were out on the French Broad River, and we had three boats full of our people, and then a couple of boats full of people we didn't know at all, but you can see smiling faces there, that's good, and boom, yeah, that's what you want to see with the youth. Get them wet, get them soaking. That's one boat. Uh, here's another boat here. Uh, Lizzie there, front and center. Um, and they're having a good time. You can see Pastor Hunter is with us, taking charge in the back. That's right, commanding the river. Uh, here's the uh, older teenage guys there taking on the challenge in unison. See that? That's great. Uh, they're having fun. Notice the smiles. Now, this is me in the back. I'm not smiling. <laughs> I appear apprehensive. I didn't realize my face was doing that, but I did have a good time. Uh, Okay, this is the one I want to stop because that doesn't look so good, but that's not our boat, okay? This was the boat behind me as we were going through these rapids. You had two rocks together, and the point was to do an S shape and to go right through the biggest rapid we would see all day. And my boat went through it in a, in a heartbeat, and I was like, whoa, I'm glad I didn't fall out. But the boat behind us, instead of doing an S, they did a lowercase L right into the rock. And they hit it, and bodies went flying. My guide said, hey, we call that a dump truck. <laughs> because bodies were spilled out everywhere. Even the guide uh, had... No fear, nobody was seriously injured or injured at all other than egos, but it was a little bit of a scary time. Okay, that's enough of that picture, I think. Um, I was thinking about those people that were behind me, you know, they were in the water for a while, they found themselves without a guide, no direction, and they looked on their faces quite hopeless. And I was wondering, very similar to what Sean said earlier, how was your week? Because I think some of us have very similar feelings of hopelessness. Just think about one area of your life for a second. Just think about your relationships. There can be hopelessness when someone doesn't return your text or calls. Or maybe the distance in your marriage is becoming more and more unbearable. You feel hopelessness. Or the child you once rocked to sleep now won't listen to your advice. Or maybe even they don't want to speak to you at all. There's a sense of hopelessness that can come with our relationship. And that's just one little part of your week. And as we continue in our Sermon series today for the love of God in the book of Romans. I want you to just go ahead and turn to chapter 5. We've covered the first four chapters and now we arrive chapter 5. You know, in chapter 4 that we just got done with, God will ensure us that Jesus Christ 
can solve your most fundamental eternal challenge. He makes you right with God. That's what Jesus does. He makes you right with God. He saves you from the wrath that you deserve because of sin and rebellion. And now you stand forgiven. But now in chapter 5, God deals with the reality that life has rapids. Even after you've been forgiven, there's still some white water ahead. Oftentimes you feel like you're stranded on a rock. The career isn't going where you want it. You're not seeing the parenting progress that you would like. You thought you were on a path to weight loss or financial flourishing, greater intimacy with your husband, but now it feels like the boat of your existence is stranded while everybody else rafts float on down the river. They get the smiles and joy. You get the hopelessness. We all feel that in our lives at different times. You might even feel like You're not just stranded on a rock, but you're on a climbing wall. Have you seen those climbing walls that don't just go up, but they go inverted backwards? They call that an overhang, and you're supposed to do it with your feet dangling, just grasping for handholds. That might be how you feel. And if you don't feel it now, you're gonna. And Paul realizes that when we come to chapter 5 in the book of Romans. So today, he's going to give us Three handholds when life gets messy. When you're on the cliff of life and you feel like you're falling, he gives us three simple handholds here together. I was reminded this week of what Jesus gives to us that's explained in Hebrews 4.14. Remember that verse we're told in Hebrews 4.14. That we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. It's Jesus, the Son of God. He's not like a normal high priest. He is ascended and he's the Son of God. Because of that, Hebrews tells us what? Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. So we're going to look at this today and see these three handholds that God gives us here. Before we jump into Romans 5, let me just pray for us. Briefly, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. And now I pray you just give it. Give us your word that we might feast and leave here more hopeful than we arrived. Give us something to hang on to. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin right in verse 1 of chapter 5 together. Note how the chapter is going to begin. I'll just read the very first of it. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. I can think of no better way to sum up the first four chapters of Romans than to say, we've been justified by faith. What does that mean? Well, in chapter four, Paul went over this. Abraham was declared right with God because of his trust, his confidence that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Likewise, Paul says, if you and I trust in God, we will be forgiven based on the merit of Jesus Christ applied to us. So with a loud, resounding voice, God looks out at all the cosmos and he says, my people are forgiven. They will stand on the last day. They will not be judged by the wrath of 
God. We've been justified by faith, forgiven, period. But what now? That's why Paul begins this saying, since we have been justified by faith, what now? That's a good time to remember at this point that Paul, the writer of the letter, is a fantastic pastor. He knows full well in life that it's going to be more grind than gravy. He knows that there's many a slip twits the cup and the lip. He knows that getting from here to heaven is going to be a rough ride. It's not going to be smooth sailing. As one writer put it that I was reading this week, we all live in stories that are broken. None of us has the perfect story. Look at Paul's own life. Slip-ups and shipwrecks, heartache, hard rejection, anxiety, abuse. God knows where you are now is not exactly where you want to be and it's not where you're going to be. Knowing your trials and your trauma Your tedium, God gives you these handrails of hope. Now here's the first one. Realities you can grab onto when the wall feels like it's crumbling before you. The first one he gives you is peace with God. Peace with God. Keep reading in verse 1. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're forgiven, set right with God, we're now at peace with Him. Now, why would Paul emphasize peace here at this point? He knows people are hurting. Why does he emphasize peace? What is he talking about, and why does it matter? Well, when the Bible talks about peace with God, it's going to talk in terms of reconciliation, bringing two parties together that once were not. There was animosity there, and reconciliation has to happen. They have to be brought together. That's what the Bible means when it talks about peace with God. If we skip on down to verse 10 and peek ahead, Paul writes this, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Elsewhere he will write this in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So peace with God here involves God turning you from his enemy Not just into his friend, but to his child. Now if we think about this idea of peace with God, how can that help us here in the now? In the midst of all of our life drama, what is this going to change? Well, here it is. Having peace with God opens the door to the peace of God. Having peace with God, no longer being his enemy, opens the door to the peace of God. What do you mean by that? Well, Now that you're in a relationship with Jesus, you now know the prince of peace. The ultimate source of peace is now connected to you. And that's very, very hopeful. Think about when Jesus in John 14 was preparing to leave his disciples. In verse 27, he reminded them this. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. How does the world give peace? Well, it can only offer things that will eventually fade away. But Jesus says, I'm giving you something different. It's a different type of peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. What kind of peace is he getting at? 
Pastor John Piper describes what Jesus was thinking when he said these words on the eve of his death. He might have been thinking, I'm going to the cross tomorrow and I'm going to purchase your forgiveness. I'm going to satisfy the Father's wrath against all your unrighteousness. And I'm going to provide a completed righteousness so that if you would rest in me, if you would trust in me, you will now not just have a peace that I make, this is crucial, not just have a peace that I make, but a peace that I have with my own Father. So the fog begins to lift a little bit in what Jesus is talking about and what Paul wants you to have this morning. When Jesus makes peace between you and the Father, he merrily hauls you into the midst of Trinitarian love. Jesus has always had joy and love and harmony, the Son and the Father. And when Jesus made peace between you and God, he's bringing you into this circle of joy and hope and peace. Mutual joy, undying love. We are brought into this, and it is ours to relish as the Father's child. This is your peace. We've been talking about school starting back this week, last week for some. Imagine, if you would, a small child, maybe first grader, and this child is going off to school for the first time this year. And she found out online, someone uh, let her know, that she is in the class with that one teacher that nobody likes. So here she goes into that classroom to meet Mrs. Crinklebottom. (laughs) Not a real teacher, I hope. I apologize to all the Crinklebottoms out there. And she goes in. And it's just as advertised. Mean, outburst of anger, inconsistency, rude to the kids, manipulative. Her worst nightmare is this day of school. And then imagine the same child coming home and she walks in the door and there are her parents who are not perfect, but they're for each other. They're not perfect But they're going to give that child a hug when she walks in. They're not perfect, but they're going to say, sit down, sit on my lap. I will hug you and tell me all about your day. This is the kind of peace that God is bringing you into that is available to us now. It is the peace of God between the Father and the Son. We have been brought into this through our justification. And Paul is holding it out. Saying, take the peace of God, remember it, pursue it, know that it is yours today. And later he'll build on this in the book of Romans. Several verses let us know that this peace with God is actually what's going to be the foundation of our peace with others. I could choose a lot of verses, but I just want to remind you of Romans 14 verse 18 where Paul makes this point. Remember the situation in Romans 14? People were arguing. People in the church were mad at each other. Not over masks or shots, but over food they disagreed about. And this is what Paul said. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. That's the peace part. And approved by men. So then, if you're accepted 
by God, if you have peace. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, what happens if you don't pursue peace based on your peace with God? He said, do not, for the sake of food, do not, while you argue about these smaller things, what does he say? Do not destroy the work of God. Not only is you understanding your peace with God crucial for your own emotional, spiritual well-being, but it's crucial so that you can have peace with others so that you do not destroy the work of God. This is heavy stuff. It's essential. That's why Paul front ends it here and says, remember, we have peace with God. So your peace with God not only comforts you, but it allows you to live in peace with others, allowing God's work to flourish. That's your first handhold today. Let's see the next one. Number two. Look in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Your second handhold is God's grace by faith in the work of Jesus. You now have a certain access that you didn't have before. I don't know how much sports you watch or how much TV you watch, but on occasion... Coming up this fall, I know I will have this experience. There will be a football game on that I want to watch in the NFL, and I don't have access to it. I don't have NFL Game Pass, so I can't watch it. Maybe you have a show you like to watch on Netflix, and they just yanked it off and they put it on Hulu, but you don't have access to Hulu. You don't want to call your... Similar thing with God's love. Before we were justified, we did not have access to the grace of God. Paul is saying, now that you're justified, remember, you have a new access. Because of the substitutionary death of Jesus on your behalf, you now have access to grace. In fact, Paul says, you're standing in grace. Now, how is that going to sustain us today in a broken messy, masked-up world. Why does that matter? Well, here's another handhold. Remember the verse I mentioned earlier in Hebrews. I want to jump back to that and take a closer look because in Hebrews 4.14, I want you to follow the train of thought here. We read there, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So he's taking aim here in Hebrews at a particular type of weakness. Did you see it? The weakness is our tendency, after being saved, to rebel against God. We create a lot of messes, by sinning against God and against others. But here comes the handhold. Jesus, in his infinite, glorious perfection, he never did sin. Not once. Where you get trapped, he escapes. Where you stumble, he keeps on walking. Where you trip up, he steps over. Jesus did not fail. He did not follow Satan. He did not sin. He knows what makes you weak, but he also has the power to overcome it. 
And he has the power to overcome any temptation that you face. Think about that for a minute. Any temptation you face this week, Jesus Christ has the power to overcome it in you. Verse 16 in Hebrews says, Let us then, because Jesus is so good and he never ever sinned, let us then approach the throne of grace. That's what Paul was talking about. Grace with confidence, not with uncertainty about the future, about our own ability. No, we approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's called a throne of grace because it dispenses the power that you need. The favor of God is dispensed from God to conquer sin and Satan. We are to daily turn to our high priest in prayer when we are tempted to sin. Why? He keeps saying, he says it more in uh, verse 16, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer of Hebrews touched on this earlier. Hebrews 2, verse 18. He said, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, now he is able to help those who are being tempted. What we are being reminded of is that Christ's justifying death on our behalf has been given us now access to grace. And this grace is nothing less than Jesus fighting for you against the tremendous tugs of sin and Satan. This week you will feel the tugs of your own sin and Satan. I was talking earlier about this rafting trip last weekend. Still on the brain. One really humbling and dangerous thing about rafting is that if you fall in the water, it's sometimes hard to get back in. I didn't fall in this time. We jumped in to swim. But on other rafting trips many years ago, I would, I've been thrown out many times. And one thing remains. When you're in the water, you're here, right? And you're looking up at a raft that starts here. It's really hard to get back in because as you're kicking, you have no foothold. You can't get up in there. And this time, before we all started down, they gave us some really good training. And the training was this. If you're in the raft and someone else falls in, there's a certain way that you can get them back in. You go over to the edge of the raft. You squat down. Don't grab their hair or their ears or their jewelry. Grab their straps, and then do what? Fall completely back with all of your body weight, and that will yank them up out of the water. And sure enough, we saw it in action because we had a lot of people in the water that day. But I want you to know, this really is the picture of the hope that God has for you today. As you feel the temptation to sin against your spouse, just strike out verbally in anger, just unload on them because the weight is pulling you under the stress of the day. Know that God's Spirit is throwing their full body weight in the other direction and can keep you from sinning and pull you out of the muck. That's the grace for you to stand in. Students, if laziness creeps in, but you know you should still be studying God has you by the straps and can yank you up to resist. That's the handhold of grace. As one more glance at pornography beckons you to the screen, 
Realize that your kicks aren't enough to keep you away. But God can graciously lift you out of those foamy waters today. Stand in His grace. If your soul just feels like this present darkness is winning, and Satan tells you, hey, this current round of COVID, that's just proof you're not going to win. God's not powerful enough. Just pause and plant yourself in the grace of God. Disease will not squash God's people, for His favor will never let us sink below the waterline. Stand in God's grace. We must remember these things that God has purchased for us in and through the work of Jesus. This is the grace of God. Hebrews 4 tells us to approach the throne of grace. When God calls you to approach the throne of grace, there is a built-in assumption that you'll make a conscious effort in your day to go to God. In your heart, you will go to Him in prayer. There's a discipline in asking God to give you His grace. Now that you have access, think about what might be stopping you throughout your day from just asking God, God, give me grace. God, I need grace here. Help me. Help me. What's stopping you? Could it be Satan's lie that you are self-sufficient? That's a lie from the pit of hell. We must approach God in prayer today. Could it be that you don't even see your own sin? I was reminded recently about a cat I used to have. I don't know if you've ever owned a cat. If you have, you've probably seen this. I had this chubby cat, and he would go, and he would play and like to hide and chase after things. And we had a broom, and that chubby cat would go, and he would hide behind the broom, and everything but the head would be sticking out. And everybody in the room knew that that cat was not hiding, but because he could hide his own eyes, he thought nobody could see him. That's probably what you look like if you can't see your own sin. Someone can see it. So you must go to God and just say, God, I can't see my sin. I need you to reveal it and then give me the grace to overcome it. Could be that you just forget God in your routine activities. Hugely important for students. Do not forget God. If that's your problem, I would recommend just standing still, taking a moment regularly and asking God, show yourself to me, God, and show myself to me, God, and let me know that your grace is sufficient to overcome every trial I have today. That's what it means to stand in grace. So as we look at this text in Romans 5, our first handhold is the peace of God. The second handhold is the grace in which we stand. Thirdly, there's more here for us. Look on in verse 2. The rest of the section is swallowed up by this last point. This is where Paul spills the most ink. Verse 2 he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What's he talking about? Well, you may have heard in our culture a phrase that's become quite common in the last few years. It's called trust the process. Have you ever had anybody ever say that? Just trust the process. World of education, business, athletics, leaders are always saying this mantra. You need to just trust 
the process. It often means things might look bad now, but you need to know that we have a plan to make things better. You might be currently on a rocky path, but that's not going to be your final destination. We've got a process in place to get us to a successful place. Now, in business and in sports, trust the process does not always work out. Philadelphia 76ers and the Dallas Cowboys have been saying trust the process for years with no championships. I'm not upset about it, though. Trust the process. That doesn't work because they've got bad managers or bad coaches. But when God says trust God's process, it really does have some weight because God is infinitely perfect in every way. And that's what he's going to be saying to it. Look at verse 2 again. At the end of it, he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's Paul's way of saying, trust God's process. What is God's process? Well, God promises to completely restore you and then some, right? The fancy term for this is glorification. That's the promise he's holding out. In the future, on the last day, Christ will return And he's going to come in and he's going to usher in a whole new state of glory. All of the cosmos will be upended and changed and transformed for the good. And you will be a part of this. Your body will finally be free from the impact of sin. No aging. No disease. No obesity. No mental illness. And your soul will be from sin. Freed. No more giving in to greed. Or lying or bitterness, you will be glorified. Now later on in chapter 5, we're going to be reminded of Adam. Adam from Genesis fame. His name's going to come back up. Why would God put that here? Well, he's going to tell us that Adam was placed in the first creation. The idea is before Adam rebelled, he was glorious. He lived in harmony with God. Body wasn't dying. The impact of sin was not yet felt. And then he rebelled against God and everything changed. And ever since, humans have not had Adam's glory. We're not as bad as we could be, but we're still corrupted because of our rebellion and Adam's rebellion as well. But what Paul's going to say is that there's a new Adam on the scene. There's a second Adam who doesn't introduce death and decay He introduces life and healing. Jesus Christ brought obedience, even obedience unto death on a cross. Adam brought disobedience. Jesus brought obedience. And why that's relevant is God promises that one day in the future, we will not just be restored to Adam's glory, but will be upgraded to the glory of Jesus Christ himself. Paul is saying, right now, consider yourself an upgraded restoration. Where I'm from in Tennessee, everybody loves cars. All the dudes, anyway. Except me. I'm just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But there was a lot of guys in my peer group who would take the classic cars and they would restore them. That's what their hobbies would be. They would be in their garages all the time restoring these classic cars. And the goal was to one day, through ordering the right parts, Get this thing to look exactly the way it did when it rolled off the factory lot. That's the goal. But then there was a subset of those dudes, and they like to restore classic cars, 
but they also wanted to modify them. So the outside would be completely restored, but these cats like to mess with the engine a little bit, to modify it so it would perform better. These guys wanted to go faster than the 40 miles per hour the old classic car would go. They wanted to go 100 miles per hour, so they would modify the engine, and it would be a restored upgrade. And that's what Paul is saying. We need to remember that this glorious restoration is all of ours because we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The process of God is to bring you to this restored state. We rejoice in the hope of glory of God in Christ himself. Trust the process that God is bringing you forward is what Paul is saying. And then, in a surprising way, God chooses one thing in your life that proves the process is working. What do you think he would choose? He chooses sufferings. That's very surprising. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why does he say that? Well, he's begging you to take a view of your reality, a view of your sufferings, a view of your trials that is teleological, that is endpoint oriented. When we're in our sufferings, we can boast in them because we know the eternal endpoint that they are working within us. To be clear, Paul is not saying to be happy that sufferings exist. Yay, I got COVID. That's not what he's saying. When he says rejoice in suffering, that's not what he means. He says, look at what God can produce from this bad thing. God can turn it good. How do we know that? Well, he gives us process here in verse 3. Look at God's process. We can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that Suffering produces endurance, verse 4, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So it's a productive cycle here that Paul is pushing us towards, almost like those nesting eggs. If you've seen those, people put them on their desk, and you have this outer egg, and you open it up, and it's a smaller egg. Oh, I've just produced a smaller egg. You open up that smaller egg, and guess what's inside? Another egg is produced. It's a very similar idea that he's wanting you to track with. Starts with suffering. Suffering, you open up the egg of suffering, see what it's really about, and it's about your ability to endure. It's producing that in you. That's what's inside of it. You're now a person that can endure when you could not before. What's inside the egg of perseverance? Well, it's character production. Your character is being strengthened. Trials become the crucible through which strong character is formed. Now, here's the crucial part. Paul is saying suffering produces endurance, which produces character. He's saying that for a reason. This is it. The strengthening of your character proves that God is working now. If you're stronger now than you were before, that's not your own work. That's God pushing you to trust him more. See that change? Well, if that is happening, he's changing you now. Consider this a down payment on your future change, your upgraded restoration. The idea is if God is doing this now, that proves he can change somebody. And in the end time, he will change you to your completely glorified self, ready to be with God forever. 
So the process of character growth produced by suffering actually becomes your handhold. You see the growth whenever you can open your eyes in the midst of it. I'm growing. I'm trusting God a little bit more than I used to now. That's a handhold tells you that one day God is going to complete the project in you. I've had a lot of fun uh, over the years coaching uh, little kids here in town in the city and um, in Garner where I live uh, in sports. And uh, one thing I like to coach is uh, little kids soccer. And it's always funny when you get a second, third, first grader and you're trying to teach them how to juggle a soccer ball with their feet. Whenever I want to try to teach that, I don't use myself as an example because I'm not that good at it. I'm better at teaching people than I am myself. So I get my son who I taught how to juggle and I might said, look at him. And he would start juggling and the little kids would be amazed because they can't juggle it once. But here he's juggling it 25 times. They're like, wow, wow, teach us, teach us. Like, All right, here's how you do it. You take a ball, drop it on your foot, kick it, let it bounce, and then kick it again. That's how you start. And they look at me like... You can start there and end up there. I say, trust me, trust me, trust me. And so they all get their balls and they drop them and it's a mess. You know, juggling is supposed to be right here. If you don't know soccer, you just keep the ball right here. But when little kids try it, it's bam. They chase their ball and they get it and they're like, "Uh, this isn't working. I'm like, no, no, look at him, look at him. He can juggle. Look at my older son. He's in high school. He can juggle. They're like, okay, determination on a faith. They do it again. Boom, over the fence. Okay, they go over the fence, they get the ball, they bring it back. They say, sure, this is going to work. I'm like, yes, yes, look at him. And what they do is they finally get it. Instead of one touch, they get two juggling touches, and they grab the ball, and they say, look at me, coach, I got two. And you can see it in their mind. Just that second touch gives them the confidence that one day they're going to be able to juggle like this dude. And it's the same idea in your suffering. In your sufferings, if you're seeing a tiny bit of character growth, of trusting Jesus just a little bit more, Paul wants to say to you, see that? That is proof that one day you will be complete, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Ed Welch once wrote this. He said, hopelessness is a small step from spiritual neediness. And spiritual neediness is the foundation of all change. This tiny bit of trusting God a little bit more, I'm fighting sin a little bit more, gives you the confidence. One day, God will complete the transformation. Now, God is good enough to give us one assurance, but he gives us another one here. If you need further confirmation that you will one day experience this glorious transformation, check out verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, Hope does not put us to shame. What's he mean by that? In other words, you can trust that on the last day, if you've been trusting in Jesus, you will not look like a fool, right? It's going to work. You will stand vindicated. Not ashamed that you spent your whole life hoping for this day. You will be proved that you weren't trusting a fairy tale. You will not be put to shame. Now, how do we know our hope will one day be fully realized? Keep reading there in verse 5. He said, hope does not put us to shame because, here's the reason, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know something will happen in the future because what God has done 
in the past. Think of your favorite artist or your favorite current author if you like to read novels. Do you have somebody in mind? Think about the release of their next album or when their next novel comes out. There's a lot of anticipation there. People wait in line. People go on Amazon and they order books six months early because when that book comes out, I want to be the first one to read it. I can't wait. Why is that? They've proved themselves in the past to be excellent musicians, artists, novelists. So I'm going to trust that their next piece of work is going to be fantastic. Paul is saying, you must trust. Look at the new creation work he did in your conversion by the Holy Spirit. Trust that his next all of creation work will be done as a part of your upgraded restoration. Past success proves future success. You need to remember your conversion often and just how much the Spirit has done in you since you were converted. One of the really cool things about being a pastor in a church for about 16 years is that you get to walk with people a long time. And I was talking this week to some people in our little community group, and I texted them, and I said, how long have you been in this community group? And I heard back from one who said, uh, 2008. It's like, 2008? Another one said, 2007. And the third family said, 2007. And that's... 12 years these people have been walking together. It's a long time. Sammy, stand up, man. It's 12-year-old. It's a difference between that dude and a newborn baby. That's a long time. Sammy Williams, thank you, buddy. Great job. Next week you're juggling. 12 years together, I always say, We've been through three different U.S. presidents together. And if you can walk through that, you've seen some things. Kids have been born. People have died. We met before, during, and after COVID every week together. And here's my testimony. I'm not going to name these people's names. It would embarrass them. But they are not the same people that I met 12 years ago. God has done a wondrous work in them. I can see it. They desire different things. They talk differently. They want different things. They have been changed. Their hopes, their gifts are all changing. God has gotten them from point A to point B. We're not at point Z yet. But I can look at his body of work and I know we will arrive. That's enough to give me the hope today that God will finish what he started. And here's the best thing. Saving the best for the end. I think Paul wants you to see this. He's given us three handholds here to grab onto as we navigate these perilous cliffs of life. Hold on to God's peace. Hold on to God's grace. Hold on to God's process of hope. And I just want you to know that these things can be seen most clearly in Jesus himself. Because God's peace, his grace, his hopeful process are anchored in 
by Jesus Christ. Think about peace. Jesus not only makes peace with God for you, he is God's peace. Only he comes to calm the waters of the storm by just speaking. Everything goes calm. He's being the peace that triumphs over chaos. Only Jesus draws demons out of a broken man and throws them into the pigs. The footprints of peace were all over that graveyard. Jesus is God's peace. Only Jesus met Mary Magdalene after he defeated death through dying and then rising. He was the peace of God to her when he looked her in the eyes and he said, do not be afraid. Today he's grabbing you by the shoulders and he's saying, do not be afraid. Jesus is the peace of God. Think about the grace of God. Jesus not only offers God's grace to you, in his death, he is God's grace to you. Only Jesus came to Zacchaeus, knowing every single moment and person that Zacchaeus had cheated, Jesus still pursued him. Went to eat at that little guy's house. That's grace. Jesus is God's living grace when he's hanging on a cross and he looks over And he sees this conniving robber. And he says, today you can be with me in paradise. He didn't deserve that. Jesus is God's grace. He's the grace of God when you see him embracing Peter. After Peter has denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. And he says, Peter, I trust you to go and feed my sheep. And today, Jesus looks to you and he says, I embrace you too. No matter how much you failed, I'm embracing you. Jesus is not just the one who brings the hopeful process to fruition. He is the hope of God. He is hope when he sits with a Samaritan woman and he says, look, I have water such that you will never be thirsty again. He is the hope. Jesus' hope when he's on his way with a mission to heal a dead girl and he takes a detour and speaks with a woman who's been bleeding and he says, take heart, my daughter. He is hope. Jesus' hope in suffering as you watch him take that flogging, as you watch him climb that hill and suffer up on that cross, For his sacrifice, he is the hopeful, bloody lamb. And clearly, he is hope. When he rises from the grave, he meets all of his disciples. And he says, surely I am with you, even until the end of the earth. Man, he's with us today. And he's looking at you. And he's saying, I'm with you. Let's go. I am with you with you. That's the glory of Jesus. You know, early in the sermon, I was telling you about this rafting trip. And I told you people got stuck on this rafting trip and they dumped out, but nobody was hurt. But I didn't tell you why nobody was hurt. Okay? So imagine being back on the river. Your raft just dumps people out, including the guide. And people begin to scramble up in the boat. 
Little by little, they're able to get a little bit back into the boat. But the guide is not with them. I look around and the guide is floating by my boat. <laughs> so we're like, this can't be good. They need a guide on that river. So we haul him in and he's nervous and people are screaming. And there's now about four people who have gotten back in the boat. Two others have floated on down and they're safe. But the other, two, other four in the boat are left drifting and they come to another bad rapid. And without a guide, they, sh- they grind up on this big, huge rock. Now, the rock is jagged. The water is too foamy to swim. They can't climb down. They're just stuck. And everybody's frozen on the river. The river's moving this way, but we're paddling this way so we can all watch these stuck people. And I'm thinking, I don't know what's going to happen because they aren't getting down by themselves. This might be a three-hour deal. And then I hear one of the youth in the boat with me say one word. I hear legend. I'm like, what? I look over, and there is this guide from another boat who has jumped in, swam all the way across the river through the rapids. I mean, he's like Superman. He's swimming all the way through the rapids, and my guide is like, I've never seen anything like this. His his eyes are wide. This, This guy jumped out of his safe boat, goes to the dangerous boat, climbs up in there, and he uses his skill to uproot this boat off of this rock and get everyone to safety. He knew this was no job that could be done from the outside. He had to come in and deal with the problem. And I'm so thankful to remind you today that Jesus did not stay away from you and your problems. He left heaven, swam through the suffering of living a human life to come so that he could restore your brokenness. Through his death, Jesus has purchased eternal life for you. Let's just hope together this week in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the hopeful process that you've started in Jesus and you will finish. Thank you for the grace in which we now stand. We have access to because what Jesus has done and who he is. And thank you for the peace that we have with you because Jesus has performed his obedience on the cross. God, may we treasure him. May we hold on to him this week as trials come. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.